Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh, uh, joined as always by Frank Cogliano, who is now ensconced in Charlottesville. How are things in Charlottesville, Frank? David, newsflash, it's hot in central Virginia in the middle of summer. <laughs> <laughs> Much warmer than Scotland, I can tell yes, you that. You know, it, was, it, it was in the lower <laughs> 70s here today. It was, it was beautiful. Um, yes, having spent many summers in the, in the south, uh, I empathize. Hopefully your air conditioning is good. Air conditioning is fine, but uh, yeah, it's very, very warm. But apart from okay. that, er everything is great. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, I'm glad you made it safely under all kinds of things. Right, so uh, this week we are discussing uh, an article called Missed America uh, that is about uh, a, a, so ostensibly a review of Myth America, a book uh, by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelzer. But Frank, you picked this article uh, because it has caused some controversy uh, for us to discuss today. Tell us what it is that it attracted you to this, this piece and, and summarize it for those people who haven't had a chance to read it yet. Sure. Uh, so it's an essay. It's a review essay, as you say, by uh, a historian who I who is known to both of us, and I know him reasonably well, named Johan Neem. Well, you introduced West me to him at a cocktail party at Cheer a few years ago. At least that's you my memory. Well, and I don't remember doing that, but I'm happy I did. Um, Anyway, Johan is a professor at Western Washington University uh, in Washington State, and he's written this review essay in the Hedgehog Review, uh, Critical Reflections on Contemporary Culture. This is not a um, periodical I, I was familiar with previously, uh, and it's a review, as you say, of, of the new edited collection by Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer, Myth America, as well as a... Um, a kind of forum that appeared in the American Historical Review on the 1619 Project. He, Johan mentions that as well. And this, this review essay has caused a little bit of a, a storm in our world. I suspect that mo most of our listeners might not be aware of it, but... Uh, and, yeah, and, yeah, well, it's, it's generated an interesting debate, and I thought it would be an interesting conversation mm. to us for us to have. Um, the, the subtitle of, of Neem's essay is Attacking the Right Without Asking About the Left. Now, in a minute, I want to turn over to you because you, you've actually read the book that, that, is, that uh, Neem is reviewing. But just to sum up his argument, his, his argument in this essay and the critique he offers of the book is that um, historians have been more willing to challenge myths from the right than from the left. Uh, the implication is that most historians, at least academic historians, are are of the left themselves, and that that we're fairly uncritical. There were three. There are kind of three bits of this that really seem to have caught the attention, at least of professional historians, and generated some heat on social media. And I, I'll, if you'll indulge me, I'll briefly read them because I think they sum up Neem's overall argument, which is. And so the first is. Um, He's, he's essentially critiquing historians, as I said, for being uncritical of left of uh, interpretations from the left and so-called myths of the left, whereas uh, they're very critical of those of the right. So he writes, when it becomes an axiom that truth comes from the left and lies from the right, something is amiss. When all the bad things America did are true, but none of the good things, something is definitely amiss. So that was one quote that uh, garnered a lot of attention. The other was, and, and he, 
Uh, I'm uh, deliberately cherry picking quotes, um, which is unfair, uh, uh, but particularly because I think there's a lot of nuance in this essay that people have, have missed uh, academics. Have missed. However, I'm just to, to set the stage, I will give you these three quotes. Second one, fortunately, most Americans have a much more nuanced understanding of American history than professional historians, brackets, or their most vocal right wing opponents. Close brackets. Most Americans recognize that the past is complicated. And then he goes on to provide some polling data to suggest that both Republicans and Democrats have re actually relatively similar views about what ought to be taught uh, in history. And then the final quote is, which really engendered a lot of attention, and, and is, I don't think professional historians fully understand the damage that they are causing to the history discipline's credibility and integrity. We have a public trust to uphold. One that has become even more important as the U.S. Supreme Court draws on history and tradition to interpret the Constitution. Can we be, can we be relied upon to offer honest appraisals of gun laws, abortion access, and regulation, uh, sorry, abortion access and regulation, public health, and other important questions facing our countries? And then, so these three quotes sum up, it's a critique of history as a professional discipline in many respects. So he uses the, the Cruz and Zelizer book to kind of offer, hold up a mirror to, um, to ourselves, I guess, David, to academic mm -hmm. historians, particularly historians in the United States and the way we conduct our business. And basically saying we've lost the public or we are losing the public and we're undermining our credibility as, a, as, as practitioners of a discipline. We've, we're undermining that very discipline. Um, and, and that this is coming at, at some cost, both to history as a discipline, but also to the country. So it's a pretty robust review. Uh, one might say that the backlash it's engendered, and if you go on social media, you can, you can find it, uh, to some extent proves his point because he's been criticized a lot from people saying, you know, um, this is all wrong or this is rubbish and, you know, you don't understand. I mean, there are a number of criticisms which we, which we might get to, but to some extent, the tone of the criticisms um, suggests to me that perhaps he struck a nerve and to some extent they prove his overall thesis about the uh, perhaps lack of direction or uh, of, of, our, of our discipline. So do you want to, uh, well, first of all, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts of, about the essay, uh, but, mm. but perhaps in order to set the scene, you should say something about the book that he was he was critiquing, because I have to confess, I haven't read the book yet. It was recently published, but you, being a young and active and engaged scholar, <laughs> have have read most of it. So can you can you uh, sum up yeah. the book in question, please? So so the book is uh, an edited collection of of 20 essays. Um, written by some some very prominent historians. They, if you look at the sort of the table of appendix uh, uh, or table of, of contents, sorry, uh, of the volume, you, you know, uh, and you are familiar with the historical profession, the people they have contributing to this volume are very impressive. Uh, so it is some some really sort of top shelf shelf names, uh, and they're exploring uh, myths. Uh, of American history. And if you read the introduction, and I think reading the introduction in the context of this essay, I think is really important. You know, I think the premise of the book that, that Cruz and Zelzer lays out is that, that we're at a very particular moment uh, 
during the Trump presidency in which certain kinds of myths are brought to the fore um, for political purposes. Myths about uh, immigration, myths about the border, myths about socialism, myths about the lost cause, myths about how the civil rights movement and the great society worked, myths about police, um, myths about white supremacy um, that were used for political purposes explicitly during the Trump administration, but also in, in the recent past. Uh, and this book is an attempt to respond to that, right? And I think it, it's highlighting the role of um, the right-wing media in, in spreading certain kinds of myths about American history. And it's, um, uh, you know, trying to respond to Fox, Fox News and things further to the right of Fox News in terms of the ways in which they use myths about the past to, to spread certain kinds of stories about the present. Uh, so it's fairly explicit in its in the introduction about saying that look, this is the purpose of, of this volume is try to respond to some of these uh, things that have entered the public discourse from the right and, and try to sort of respond to them. Um, it, it's also, I think, fairly explicit in the introduction that it doesn't mean to be um, an exhaustive treatment of mythology in American history or um, you know, definitive in any way in treatment, supposed to sort of respond to this conversation. Um, you know, and I've read, I, I have to admit, I've not read the entire volume, but I've read about half of it. Uh, I've sort of dipped in and out of the, of the essays in it. Um, and, you know, it's very much written I think for a, a general audience or a non-academic audience, right? This, this is are mostly academic historians uh, in a couple of cases, political scientists, uh, but they're writing not for us. They're writing for a very, you know, the public that buys books in Barnes and Noble or on Amazon or something. Yeah, I mean, Basic Books is the publisher, which is a major right. trade press. It's, 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 it's a trade book. Yeah. It's but it's unusual for trade presses to publish edit, you know collections of essays. Yeah, so this is not your 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 edited collection that is you know where they print a thousand copies and it's only bought by libraries. This is very much intended to be in conversation with um, you know a. a, a A very different kind of medium, right? I think part of, of of what I find intriguing about this review is trying to think about sort of who is the audience of this review published in uh, the Hedgehog Review, uh, but also who is the audience for this book? Who did you know Kevin Cruz and Zelitzer and people at Basic Books intend this book to be for? Um, you know, and, and on the one hand, it's an academic book in as much as most of the historians are people with, with academic pedigrees and teach at universities. But on the other hand, nothing in this book is, quote unquote, original in the ways in which we tend to think of, of academic writing is, as original or making contributions to the scholarship or any of that kind of nonsense. It's intended for a, a non-academic audience, first and foremost. So, so David, are you offering 
the common critique that we all make a book, re- often make a book reviews, which is, especially when they're reviews of, reviews of our own books. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> they misread the book. They, the, the reviewer wrote the wrote a review. They wrote a review about the book they wish they'd read rather than the one they actually read. That sounds like you're 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 um, you're articulating a version of that. I, I think that, that, that I think that's something uh, of my critique. So I think the the essay that he wrote is in part not a pure book review, right? I think part of it is is his reflection, you know, uh, Neem's reflections on the place of the academic profession at this particular moment. And he's using this book as a vehicle for, for discussing that rather than actually writing a, a book review. Like he doesn't discuss, he says the art individual chapters themselves, he says are fine, right? So his, his problem is not so much with the, chapters and and the contributions themselves but rather with the the vision of what this book is uh and saying something about how we as a profession respond to um you know some uh misuses of history by by certain people on the right which is very much what this book is trying to respond to okay uh, i i want to Say a couple of things in response to that, and then we can talk about the maybe mm. we can talk about is the the elements of the essay itself. Um, one thing I'd say about oh, it's not actually a book review. It strikes me, and again, I'm not familiar with the Hedgehog Review, um, but you know, it's just critical reflections on contemporary culture. So that's the premise of the of the of the uh, periodical. It struck me when I read it as being the kind of essay one would would read in the New York Review of Books or the London Review of Books, mm. which is to say, an author writes a review or writes a reflection in some respects or a response to a book, which sometimes is only incidentally about the book itself. Uh, I mean, you get book reviews, kind of conventional book reviews, if you will, in both scholarly journals, you know, the kind of 500 to Mm -hmm. 1,000 word review where somebody really does take the book apart or in newspapers and periodicals. But then there are there is a genre of review writing, and I'm using air quotes for review, where some where an author might reflect on the bigger themes of the books. And it seems so. I'm less. I, you didn't say you were bothered by this, but I think mm. in response, in defense of Neem's essay, I would say I think he's writing in that tradition. And there is a kind of well-established genre of book reviews that that operate like this. Yes, I agree. Yeah, no, I think this uh-huh. is this is a, a, play, a, a an essay that uses the book as a jumping-off point rather than a, a pure review of the book. Right. And I, I think it's defensible in that respect. The one thing I, I want to push back a little bit on your, your critique of, uh, of him for not writing the book uh, or not reviewing the book that was written. Uh, I mean, this is an unusual book in that it's a, it's a trade book, yet it's a collection of essays. Mm-hmm. But OK, the title of it is Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. Now, that definitely sounds like a trade title. But it's not saying take on the biggest right-wing legends and lies about our past. The implication of that title is that this is not, if not comprehensive, certainly going to talk about the biggest ones. And and Neem's critique is all of the legends and lies, the myths that are being crit- mm. critiqued, are from the right. Now yes. you're you're saying in the well in the introduction they explain that, and particularly in the given moment, that kind of makes sense. But that's not what the title says. Yeah, um, to be sure. Now, the title reflects what um, 
the publisher wants to sell books. And I think the title is intended to do that. Uh, but Trump shows up several times on the first page of the book, you know, and so it's very much a book that's trying to respond to this particular moment. And, and it's designed, I think, to be in conversation with books that are very similar kinds of books that are coming out from the right, um, which are equally sort of one-sided, but without as much evidence or without as much scholarly backing to them. Um, and so I think it's, you know, the books that it's designed to be in conversation are not necessarily books that you and I would read as academics because they're not academic books and they're not making an academic contribution. We're not necessarily doing that, but I think it's designed to be a book that's on that shelf next to uh, Mark Levine or um, I'm trying to think of other sort of, you know, right-wing writers who are writing sort of versions of American history, trying to just say, look, America was a born on a Christian basis and, and that, you know, um, these kinds of sort of myths that, 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 that are very popular among the right, um, that, uh, you know, I think it's, it's designed to be a book in some ways. If I'm envisioning what this book is for. This is the, the book you buy for Christmas for your relative who uh, watches maybe uh, too much Newsmax. And you want to respond to them and give them, you know, instead of having that argument over Thanksgiving, I think part of what this book is intended to be is that. Right, like a. Oh no, no, no! I disagree, David. David, uh, no, 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 no! I don't think that's what it's for at all. I think you're meant to give it to your sister or aunt or uncle who, well, I think it's also, New, you know, who reads the New Yorker and already agrees with what's in there. I, and true. I think that's memes critique. I I don't think this is intended to to convert people who are buying Bill O'Reilly's well, books. I, I don't think it's going to convert anyone who buys, you know, O'Reilly's books. But I think it's designed to be, you know, given, you know, as a as a tool. I don't know. I mean, yes, both of these things. Um, you know, the question is like, who is this book? I'm very intrigued by who this book is for, right? Because it, it's written um, by by some very very good historians, and the essays in it are on the whole very solid. Um, but they're usually sort of basically condensed versions of what these historians have written often at great length um, and with great nuance in other places. Um, and, and I think that was sort of the, the remit they were given was translate the work you've already done into a, an audio, you know, a, 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 for a public audience. Um, and I think that's fine. I, I don't think that, that, that you know, um, the bits about the the article that that jumped out to me, uh, you know, were in some ways uh, some of the things that jumped out to you. The line about most Americans have more nuanced understanding of American history than professional historians. The evidence he cites for that I didn't find very persuasive. Um, you know, the 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 polls he uses are ask very generic questions like, "Does American history have some good bits and some bad bits?" And basically everyone says yes. Well. Yes, but if we decide what the good bits are and the bad bits are, then we'll get down to the nitty gritty. Then I think we'd actually have some, some widespread disagreement. Um, one of the questions I think that, that this essay raises, though, and, and a question I think we need to sort of think about is, is what's the difference between a lie and a myth? Because the 
book uses the word myth in its title. And, and you know, myth has- It also has, uses lies in its title. Title, its yeah. Subtitle. So, so what, what is the difference? And, and it has the word legends, and obviously all these things are, what's the difference for you about between a myth and a lie? Well, I'm going to quote one of the great Americans of the 20th century in response to this, George Costanza. <laughs> All right. Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it. Hmm. <laughs> and I think lies, you know, to, 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 you know, lie, to call something a lie is a provocative statement in and of itself. And so to use lies in the subtitle, you know, to, to take on the biggest Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past, uh, places the people who believe those lies, to quote Charles mm -hmm. Costanza, on the back foot because you're saying you're a liar. And, and, and um, you know, one person's legend is another person's lie. Or mm -hmm. one of the things we've seen, one of, and, and, and Neem reflects on this a little bit in his essay, is, you know, we've now decided there are no facts and these are being contested. And one of the responses uh, of, of Neem's critics online has been, certainly on, on Twitter, uh, you know, the facts aren't left wing, but, hist you know, professional historians have, you know, deal in fact, and they're pushing up against myths often or lies often propagated by major media companies with a particular political bias. And, you know, so, so we end up talking past each other. Um mm. But I think if you tell people, I, I think Neem's argument is, hmm. as historians, professional historians, we're making a mistake when we call dearly held beliefs by members of the public lies because they stopped listening to us at that point. Hmm. I mean, I think that's I think that's his larger point. Yeah. So even using this kind of emotive, critical language, calling things lies, I mean, to some extent, who cares what a lie is? Uh, but but on the other, I, I I think his larger point is we marginalize ourselves when we use this kind of language. So rather than so, would you agree with that? Well, I mean, I think sometimes you know, with the most powerful of these myths, whether it's the myth of the lost cause or the myth of American exceptionalism or the myth of of the free market or these other myths that are discussed in this book. You know, the, the insidious thing about them is that people end up buying into them and sort of treating them as truths um, unconsciously. A and that, you know, whereas, you know, when they say that, you know, and this is an example they use in the introduction, you know, when they say that, you know, when the Trump administration said, look, more people view the Trump administration's inauguration than any other inauguration in, in American history. And people said, well, that's actually not true. They said, no, that's a lie. You know, that, that that's a, no, as you point out, a knowing falsehood. And I think, um, and, uh, we, we, how do you wrestle with both myths and lies in a post-truth world, I think is one of the things this book is trying to wrestle with as a as a, in this particular moment. Isn't there a challenge though? Because all right, there, there are there are kind of basic facts that are demonstrably true or untrue. So mm. the number of people who attended Trump's inauguration is a good example. But then there are 
myths, and again, I'm or lies that I'm using, or legends, to use all three words that appear in the title, and I'm mm. using all of those advisedly. You know, the lost cause being a case in point. You and I, I think, are in broad agreement on what the causes of the Civil War were and what the Civil War was mainly about. Yes. Many people... I hope so. Yeah. Many people, particularly those who subscribe to the lost cause, wouldn't agree with that and and say it wasn't primarily about slavery. Right. That's not the same thing. That's not a Mm. lie in the way that, um, you know, disputing how many people were attended President Trump's inauguration, you know, sort of knowingly Mm. Sean Spicer going out and saying, more people attended that inauguration than any inauguration in history. Okay, that was a lie, and he knew it when he said it. The causes of the Civil War is a, is a thing that historians have been mm-hmm. arguing about for 150 years or yeah. longer. Um, and there is some legitimate disagreement about it. There is widespread, I think, public misunderstanding about it, depending on one's um, perspective mm-hmm. on it. And, and that's often a political perspective. But that's not to say the people who believe it was, that slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War or that it was mainly about states' rights are lying. Right. Would you agree with that distinction? Um, I think it very much depends on the context. I mean, I think Sean Spicer knew he was lying when he was saying those things. At least I hope he was because the evidence there was yes. Um, on the other hand, you know, when, when people articulate that the Civil War was not about slavery, or when they say slavery wasn't that bad, um, how they got those in their those ideas inside their head is a slightly more challenging question. And I can't see inside people's heads, at least uh, not the moment. Uh, so, so sometimes that's trickier to do. Um, one of the questions I think this this article raises. I'm curious what you think about this. You know, is his critique is saying, look, he's only looking that this book is only looking at the, the myths that are articulated by the right. Is the right, however you want to define this, or the Trump people, or the, however, you know, again, frame it however you think it's best appropriate. Are they better at weaponizing myths and or lies about the past than the left is? Because um, part yeah. of his argument is like, you know, why aren't there more leftist myths in this book? And I guess one response I had is I can't, like, what leftist myths would there be in this book that get weaponized in the same way that the right weaponizes some of their myths? I mean, I think, and this is where the the Krauss and Zelizer book is is good. You know, there is a different, you know, the media ecosystem really matters in this. So, you know, academics are writing in the Hedgehog Review and in scholarly journals and, Mm. you know, complaining to each other on social media, whereas there is... There, uh, over the past 30 years, but particularly the past 10 years, a, a, uh, an infrastructure has developed, a media and social media infrastructure has developed on the, on the right that's quite effective at getting its views out. Now, again, I'm not going to, uh, let's not be so judgmental and say that it's all about lies all the time, but, but mm-hmm. you know, that particular perspective is better promoted. 
On the other hand, you walk into Barnes and Noble or, you know, major bookstores and you don't see a lot of scholarly academic history on sale. You don't see as much as you do in the UK, for example, where the kind of mainstream market for scholarly history, I think, is or sort of crossover history as a genre is a little bit more robust. What you get is you get a lot of history. And in both of our subfields, the American Revolution and the Civil War, there's a huge amount being published, much of it by journalists or amateurs. I'm not saying amateurs in a critical way. I'm saying mm-hmm. people who aren't affiliated with the academy um, uh, formally. And, and some of these people are very good historians. Some of them are not. And I, again, I think Neem would say we've ceded the ground to those people because we don't know how to speak to the public and that that's a problem. I mean, I, 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 he, he, the implication of his argument is that you know, this mm. has kind of implications for society that are that are that aren't great for history as a discipline, aren't great for us as a kind of yeah profession, but has wider implications. So, in answer to your question, I, I think the right at the moment is better at propagating its perspective, or seems to be. I, yeah, I. I have a little more faith in the American people. I'm a little bit sympathetic with, with Johan yeah. Neem on this. I wouldn't say they've got that the public has a better understanding than professional historians about or more nuanced yeah. is the is the is the phrase he used about American history than than professional historians. But I don't think the public's stupid. I mean, you know, I've just started a job at a, at a site of public history. That's, mm. you know, a, a, a not uncontroversial place because it was a place of enslavement as well as a place where Thomas Jefferson uh, did some of the things we admire him for. Um, but, you know, the public comes here in their hundreds of thousands and goes on the tour and goes on mm. the slavery tour in some cases, not as many as go on the house tour. But, the, you know, they get they get a lot of information that way. Mm. And, I you know, I think they're capable of, making sense of it so so i yeah. i you sound skeptical well no i i i i'm not um you know one of the things i i was thinking about re both reading the rereading the introduction to the book today and, and reading this article you know is that there are different categories of myths and there's different sort of places people encounter these historical myths that uh both the book is talking about and 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 Neem is talking about in his his review, you know, and one of the places that people encounter myths about America is in school. He begins the 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 essay with an anecdote about during the lockdown, you know, him talking with one of his children about what they learned in school and about the kinds of of, of, of versions of American history they learned in school. You know, I think that's one sort of register of myths that happen and mythology that happens about what kinds of American history gets taught at, at elementary school and, and high schools. Um, you know, there's the register of mythology that happens in the media and in the political sphere, which I think is sort of a different register of mythology. And then there's sort of you know, mythologies that exist in, in other particular social networks and places. And, and those aren't all the same thing. And I think sometimes when we sort of talk about how do we respond to these mythologies, whether they're harmful mythologies or just inaccurate mythologies, um, you know, I think we figuring out where those registers happen, I think, makes a difference. And I think the kinds of myths you hear 
in school and the myths you hear on Newsmax are, are, are of a different nature sometimes. And I think we need to respond in maybe in different ways, both as academics and as citizens. Um, what would a book of myths that attacks the, the myths of the left look like? What would those myths be? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, well, again, this gets, this is where things get tricky. And, and Neem says in his essay that he's nervous about writing it. And I can see mm -hmm. why, because you're, you're in danger of being kind of uh, excommunicated from the profession. Um, you know, I think the furore over the 1619 project is very interesting. And People to a large, now I don't believe that the 1619 Project, I don't believe Nicole Hannah-Jones is the equivalent of Bill O'Reilly as a historian. Yet Nicole Hannah-Jones is not a historian. No. She too is an amateur. Um, and the 1619 Project, at least um, with particularly with respect to the area where I have expertise, mm. has problems. Mm. Yet critiquing that, it's become a really, really difficult thing to do because there, it comes at a huge cost. So there's a, you know, a myth has taken root, for example, on the left, that Britain was a great emancip you know, emancipating nation in the 18th century, and American independence, therefore, was terrible mm. for enslaved people. Now, the consequence of American independence for enslaved people is something that there's a huge literature about. And I'm not going to tell you. Um, yeah. Yes, it is complicated, but it's much more complicated than that kind of, frankly, caricature view that has emerged in the re in recent years that I think has become a left wing myth. You know, mm -hmm. and, and it, it's not just down to Nicole Hannah-Jones. I mean, um, Simon well, Shama, an otherwise fine historian, you know, his book on slavery in the American Revolution is, you know, the the, the Brits are the good guys and the the the, the rebels are the bad guys. It's it's that, that that's a good example in my own field where, mm -hmm. where um, and there's a bigger debate about balancing and assessing the legacies of people who were enslavers. I mean, you and I have talked about this in the past and, 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 you know, what, what do we do with that? And there's a, there's a perspective that's pretty common on the left that the act of enslavement invalidates all other achievements. I think right. that's, you know, I, 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 I think that, that, that is a position. Uh, I think it, uh, I'm not sure it's a very sophisticated position. It's a satisfying position kind of ethically. Um, but it's not a very, it's not a very historical perspective. Mm. Uh, so, so I think, I think there are some, I don't think they're as potent for the reasons we've talked about as the myths of the right. So in that sense, I think your overall, I think the perspective of myth America is correct in the sense that, you know, the, the most potent myths of the moment seem to come from the, from the, from the right. And Neem acknowledges that, but he says, basically, come on, there are no myths and lies from the left. Yeah, um, which I think, would, and the question is, what would those be, you know, and 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 to what, what would that what would that book look like, and who would contribute to that volume, um, and that's a, a an interesting question, and I'm not quite sure I have a clear answer about that because you know the myths that they talk about in this book, I think, are are very very 
ones that both have often have very deep roots to them, but ones that have been sort of weaponized very profoundly in the recent past. Um, but I, I mean, there's a, right. there's, there's a paradox here, I think, David, because basically the the myth makers of both the left and the right are, mm. are both kind of deeply committed to American exceptionalism. Mm. On the left, they believe the United States and its antecedents is exceptionally bad. And frankly, that's not true. That, that, you know, if you take a little bit of a global perspective, you realize, okay, a lot of these kind of uh, uh, big phenomena at work are not unique to the United States. So, so mm. they're often quite blinkered and exceptionalist. And of course, on the right, there's, a, there's an assumption that the United States, possibly ordained by God, is exceptionally good. Yeah. And again, it's achievements, and there are notable achievements, you know, democracy and, and whatnot. Um are not unique to the United States either. They have particular valence and variations in the United States. Mm. Every place is exceptional at some level. But it's interesting to me that they're both committed, uh, the, both the critics and the admirers of the United States from the on either extreme to versions of exceptionalism, which frankly mm. don't withstand um, scrutiny. And especially for, for people like you and I who studied the United States outside of the United States, the absurdity of those positions becomes apparent pretty quickly. Well, I mean, that's intriguing that you say that because the first essay in the book is about, in Myth America, is about American exceptionalism. Um, and, and, you know, it's by, actually by a guy who's a historian of, of, of France as much as, uh, you know, um, and so I think it's a, an issue that the book sometimes deals with. Um, and some of the essays in the book are, I think, are, are more convincing in that regard than, than others. Um, what's the difference between, you know, myths and lies on one hand and interpretations you know, on the other? Where does an interpretation, what, what's the boundary between those categories? Right. Well, I, I think the example I gave a few minutes ago would illustrate that. So I think, yes, the number of people who attended Trump's inauguration is a fact. And if that is if you if you lie about that, if you if you, if you knowingly, you know, distort that or don't, you know, that would be a lie. I think the lost cause arguably. Flawed, though, it is, is an interpretation. So and and. You and I, I think, would say, well, okay, and the lost cause is a man, mm. you know, which is probably inaccurate. Well, I don't think, no, it is inaccurate. It's inaccurate, yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, but but people who believe that are not necessarily knowingly subscribing to a lie. So that, that's sure. the distinction I draw. That's an interpretation. I mean, there are things, you know, to give the example, I, I or to critique my own example mm. of, a, of a moment ago, there is a version, and the facts will sustain this, that Britain was an emancipating power mm. in the era of the American Revolution. That, that, that's something historians can argue about and mm. do argue. I think you can overstate it. Um, and maybe where things, may, maybe what happens is when matters of academic debate enter the mainstream, they mm. often become either mythologized, don't mm. they, and they are simplified. Um, because by definition, because the public might not have quite as nuanced an appreciation yeah. of a lot of this stuff as Johann Neem would have us believe. Uh, well, the, the interesting thing about the word myth to me, and just hearing you talk about it, is that myths sometimes mean something that people believe that is false. 
on the other hand, myths sometimes also mean you know stories that have underlying truths to them, right? And when we talk about you know we teach children Greek and Roman mythology and whatever, you know we do that in part because you know there's they're the basis of of the Western canon in some ways, but also because we think some of these stories have merit to them as as, as stories, and there's some underlying truth even if the you know details themselves are not accurate. And I think. Um, you know, I think that that's mean both this essay and the book are, are wrestling with and, and what is the what are, what are the boundaries between these things, because, you know, they can be quite powerful that, that, that myths about the past are often. Or usually, in fact, often much more powerful than the the quote unquote truthful historical interpretations or the or evidence based interpretations that are presented by 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 professionally trained historians. Um, That's right. I mean, we know Icarus didn't fly into the sun or attempt to fly to the sun. That's just what the, of, the doubters say. Um, the story of Icarus re is about overweening ambition, right? Right. Uh, and other kinds of mythologies seem to, I think, have you know, to different levels of truth depending on how you want to read them. Um, so I think it's a, a very intriguing uh, essay, and I, I, we, I guess we both recommend people read the essay and, and take a look at the book, too, and read them in conjunction with each other. I think it's an interesting indictment. Before we wrap, David, I want to ask you um, about the response to this essay, because I think, frankly, the pretty nasty response from historians to this essay um, and the slightly, you know, um, the intensity of the response, at least mm. in some quarters of, of social media, kind of proves Neem's point. Would you agree with that? I mean, so, so looking uh, at this, I mean, people have been pretty nasty about it. Yeah, there have been, although I think I've seen also seen some people in support of it. Um, not not as many as critical. Not, not as many as critical. Uh, intriguingly, there's a review in Slate, which is also very critical of this volume of, of essays in, in, along much of the same lines, uh, which, has, didn't, which came out a month ago and didn't generate quite the, nearly the same response. Um, I think there were a couple of lines in the essay that were intended to be provocative lines that people took personally. Um, and I can understand why. I mean, as you know, a professional historian, you know, like there's a lot of work and energy that goes into that. And if you say that most Americans have a more nuanced understanding of American history than 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 professional historians do. Like he, he wrote that to be a for, for rhetorical purposes rather than having that literally be true. Um, but I can understand why some people feel hurt by that because that's a, you know, attack on us as a profession. The other bit I think that people were, were critical of uh, that I think he may not have been on quite an, on firm grounding with was there's a line where he says, I don't think professional historians fully understand the damage they are causing to the history disciplines, credibility, integrity. We have public trust to uphold has become more important as the US Supreme Court draws on history and tradition to interpret the constitution. Um, and I'm not quite sure the crisis in the historical profession, his assessment of it is right on a couple of respects. Uh, one is the Supreme Court, even though it says it draws on history and tradition recently, has summarily ignored the um, briefs that have been submitted by historians 
on recent cases. There's been a few recent cases where historians have said, like, look, this is what the 14th Amendment meant. This is what it meant in the context of these things. Uh, and the Supreme Court has said, look, we're, we're ignoring that. We're doing our own version of things regardless of that. So I think that that sort of public, the, the, the literal reference to the Supreme Court is, um, uh, I, don't, I don't think that's right. And I think the broader crisis that the historical discipline is facing, at least the academic professional discipline is facing is, you know, about a broader crisis in the humanities and in the ways in which universities are funded and, and the ways in which academia is treated within the public discourse. But in some ways, I think he's kind of blaming the victim here. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's, you know, the, 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 the crisis we're facing is not because historians are not doing their job well enough. I think it's because of other things that are happening. Um, more broadly, uh, you know, uh, the, the currents are deeper than that. That's my read on, on, on that bit. And I think why people responded so critically to this. It's, um, I think people are reading some, maybe maybe reading it a little bit too literally and too personally. And, um, you know, I can understand why they might be doing that. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I think the critique of our profession at the end, and it, it comes at the end, is is, uh, is pretty sharp. And I, you know, the decline in the humanities has uh, multiple cause causes. Then mm. Johan's a good enough historian. He's a very fine historian. To I think he might be trying to you know poke the bear here, just to yeah. Or... But again, that's the nature of this form of writing, as opposed to the kind of scholarly writing we tend to do that nobody reads. Well, uh, to be sure. Also, you know, this came out over a holiday weekend. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of people had time to, a lot of academics who weren't working had time to read it and then respond to it. And, you know, who knows why social media storms, you know, why some things generate a storm and others don't. Neem suggests, and one of the things he says, I'm a little nervous writing this, he, he knew what he was doing or he, he knew the risk as it were. Um, I think some of the, I, I think a lot of the critique has been uncharitable and over the top and to some extent proved his point. I'm not saying that historians being mean to each other on social media is leading to the decline of history as a discipline. Uh, you know, it, it's mm. more complicated than that, but I would recommend people read the essay because I actually think the essay is a little bit more sophisticated than the kind of caricatured critique of it that, that mm. uh, uh, appeared on social media. Yes, and I would also recommend you read the the introduction to the. Well, I recommend you read the book if you if you can, but at least read the introduction because I think reading those in, in in conversation with one another I think is a, a useful exercise. Uh, and congratulations to the Hedgehog Review, which I had never heard of before, but now seems like it's a you know. Uh, uh, Neem clearly did what what I'm sure the editors are happy to do. He's getting people to to read the article, um, if nothing else. Right. Uh, so uh, time for the last drop, Frank. What you got? Yeah, I want to pay tribute to my new colleagues here at Monticello, David. I went to the uh, you know July Fourth is not a day off at Monticello. No, clearly <laughs> not. Uh, and, and they hold a citizenship ceremony, an actualization ceremony here on on the 4th of July. I mentioned last week that if you, you know, in our episode last week about things to do to understand America, go to a, go to one of these. Well, I can strongly and highly recommend the, the ceremony here at, at Monticello. It's profoundly moving. 
Um, and first of all, as a logistical exercise, there are between, it's usually attended by between 1,500 and 2,000 people um, on the west lawn of, of Monticello, the familiar, the nickel side of the house. It's the view of the house that you'd know if you've, if you've ever seen a U.S. nickel. Um, and there are, about, as I say, between 1,500 and 2,000 people there. It's uh, 56 new, new citizens were sworn in from 28 different countries. I think the largest country represented was Afghanistan which is interesting. Uh, sure. And and a couple of things happen. They they have to convene as a court for the moment that the, the oath is administered by a judge of the Western District of Virginia. So a judge stands there and we're all called to attention. And it's, it, for the minutes that, that they, the oath is administered, it's, it's technically a uh, a court, a federal court here in Virginia, and the oath is administered. But what's really, really powerful is that the the new citizens give testimony if they choose. They they can speak about their experiences and why they became citizens. And every time I've attended this, this has been incredibly powerful. And it speaks to a lot of what uh, Neem was talking about in his essay, actually. These people have a very sophisticated understanding of the United States. Very idealistic in most cases, in some cases religious. Um, but the the, the 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 star of the show, as far as I'm concerned, this year was a young woman who was wearing a from Colombia who was wearing a white dress and a firefighter's hat throughout okay. the ceremony. And the reason was she said, when I arrived in the United States, and I think it was six or seven years ago, I didn't. She was from Colombia. I didn't speak any English. I was too old to go to school. I was past school age. So she went to Piedmont Valley Community College, which is a local community college here. Uh, her best friend was Russian. They taught each other English. Nice. <laughs> um, and, and she was wearing a firefighter's hat because she's now an Albemarle County firefighter. Okay. Um, and it was really, really, you know, uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the place when she finished speaking. And, and they're all like this. And in fact, one of the new immigrant, new citizens rather from, from a guy from Ireland stood up and spoke and the, the, uh, people who are going to take the oath, the citizens uh, or soon to be citizens all have breakfast together with the judges and the Mar U.S. Marshals and uh, prior in, in the house in Monticello before the. How, uh, does the, how do these 56 people who get to do this in Monticello, like, how do they end up doing that? They apply. They okay. apply. I, I, I don't know what the limit is on the number, but interesting. The Irish guy stood up. He said, look, in his testimony, he said, you yeah, have the usual things. I'm grateful and it's wonderful, et cetera. He said, but you have no you, that is you people in attendance mm. have no idea what some of these people have been through. Mm. And it's incredibly powerful. So uh, I want to both pay tribute to my colleagues here at Monticello. It takes hundreds of people to pull this thing off as a logistical exercise, but it's incredibly powerful and moving. And it's yeah, that's my last drop. What about you, David? What have you got? Uh, well, I want to uh, just draw to attention people uh, a, a change they've made at the National Archives, at the main display section of the National Archives. We've talked about the National Archives before on the show. Uh, traditionally, you go in, you see the Declaration of Independence speaking of the 4th of July, you see the Constitution, um, and those are the two documents you see when you, when you go there. Uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, they have added the Emancipation Proclamation as the third document on permanent display um, at the National Archives. Uh, and so when people make that sort of solemn procession across them, they will see the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, both of which you basically can't read because the hand because it's so faded, and then the Emancipation Proclamation where it's 
slightly less freedom. Um, and I think that's an important change and uh, interesting thinking about these as, as sort of quasi religious texts or the ways in which they're treated. I think that's an interesting um, you know, contribution or, or, or change to their, their permanent displays. And I thought Juan could put into that. Well, that's great. I mean, I was there last year uh, and saw the Constitution and Declaration for the first time in a few years. Uh, so I'll have to go back. Is there anything else you'd put there, David? I mean, uh, I mean, those as three hits sound pretty sound to me pretty good, and you don't want to devalue that. Space. Yeah, you don't want to have like a whole, you know, you don't want to have a, a laundry list of things, and and, and um, you know, the Clinton impeachment resolution or something. No, no, probably not. <laughs> or Trump impeachments one and two. Um, some of the Nixon Watergate tweets. Um, you know, I think. As a partnership with the Emancipation Proclamation, I think having, and 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 this would be a weird addition because the other three are clearly government documents. Um, King, the King's "I Have a Dream" speech, because if the Emancipation, because that's a speech about the Emancipation Proclamation in large part, at least the the first half of it. Is. Um, if I had to pick a fourth thing, text, I'd probably pick that. Just Partially because there's also a speech given very close by to where that uh, the National Archives are. What would you pick? I was thinking the Fourteenth Amendment because Fourteenth Amendment, you know, totally I think they already have that. Don't they already have those? Yeah, but is it is it in? I guess so. Is, is, which version of the Constitution do they have? Do they have all the amendments? I, I think they have most of the amendments. I'd have right. to check. That's a good question. I thought they had most of the amendments. I know they have the Bill of Rights. I thought they had the other ones too, but but it's also been a while. We will have to check, listeners. If you know the answer, let us know. Yes, is the Fourteenth Amendment already there? Um, because, but, yeah. Yes, the Fourteenth Amendment would be, the, I guess, uh, a good call. Um, but I think the three they've got makes sense. I'm, I'm yeah, not sure. You need, I'm not sense. sure. I mean, I'm not sure you need a fourth. But um, well, they, they, for a while they had um, a copy of uh, the Magna Carta on display. Oh God! Which was weird because it was sort of like off by the side, but it was there for for many years. I don't know whether it's there now. Um, but on temporary display, but for a long-term temporary display, and that was a, an odd uh, juxtaposition. And well, clearly what they need, sorry, David, I, I mean, I, you know, although I've arrived here on secondment, I must remain loyal to, to Scotland. We need the Declaration of our Broth. <laughs> <laughs> Which is now on display, by the way, local <laughs> listeners in Edinburgh in, yeah. at the National Museum, uh, only temporarily, so you can go and see that yeah. um, for your post-4th of July celebration. Right, on that note, Frank, <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.